Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I'm here with our host, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Keith, how are you today? A little hot. It's been yeah. a little hot here in the Northeast for the last couple of days, Tom. A little scorchy for sure. <laughs> going to my first Red Sox game tonight. I just Get out of here. Tickets. I did. I bought some tickets on StubHub. I decided I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm going to go. That's pretty excited. Where are we in the stadium? Are we in the, the monster seats? Section 15 grandstand is usually my spot. So tickets were very cheap. Very cheap. I'm not sure people are still staying away, I guess, but I'm going to give it a try. I think baseball is a fading sport. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the <laughs> pandemic, I think, has brought it back a little. I'm more enthused than I was last year during the pandemic, I'll have to say. But uh, it's been fading for a while, but we'll hopefully we'll keep it alive for the next couple of decades so I can at least enjoy it. And screw those kids. Who cares about them? <laughs> so let's talk a bit about your guest today. You spoke with uh, Alan Levine, the chairman, president, and CEO of Ballad Health, and uh, you talked to rural healthcare, which is an area we don't uh, we don't discuss very frequently. Yeah, I think you know, as many people who listen to a few of our episodes, we've been trying to pick off some very topical issues with some very prominent leaders from time to time. This is one of those. I've been trying to get Alan on the podcast for a little bit here to talk about rural healthcare, because I think a lot of people see the headlines in the news about closures, about issues, or about reimbursement, about you know all the different things that we worry about around rural healthcare across this country. And I thought it was an important spotlight to bring to the podcast and to the listeners to sort of understand it at a much deeper level. And I would put Alan up there as one of the experts in this country, not only what he's done at Ballard, but what he's done in previous roles. You know, He's been in the administration, the healthcare policy side of the equation in the state of Florida, the state of Louisiana. He's been in a bunch of administrative roles at healthcare systems. And he tells a little bit of that story in the beginning about how he got into this stuff, which I found very fascinating um, going all the way back to his youth. But it's, it's an important topic in this country, which also parallels this idea of about what does provider consolidation look like? We all know the issues potentially that are coming up around consolidation in very urban areas and how that may lead to, and what we're seeing obviously is price increases. And so, you know, there's a big tenor right now of hospital consolidation or provider consolidation and prices going up. What gets examined in this discussion is what does that mean when you become the sole provider in a rural community with flat to down population growth and having to deliver care across large geographic swaths? And how do you do that in partnership with states? And how do you do it in a way that potentially does not increase costs, but actually caps prices? And so Ballot Health, which I don't think a lot of people know this story, is the merger of Wellmont and Mountain States in Eastern Tennessee and a little bit of Virginia, a little bit of North Carolina. And they worked with two states, the state of Virginia and the state of Tennessee, to, in essence, build a monopoly in that region for rural healthcare in that region. But allowing them to do so also put in almost like a fixed budget with cap prices over a number of years to see if the experiment would actually work out. And so far, as you'll hear from Alan, it is working out. And the numbers are pretty interesting about reductions in ED, better health outcomes, reduction in hospital-based infections, more linear sites of care, 
uh, appropriate sites of care in the right geographic mapping and not overutilization in two hospitals or two ERs or, or you know, two, I talk about a little bit about two Da Vinci robots that get 20% utilization or something like that. I think it's a really interesting discussion. I think people are going to enjoy it. And the region they're talking about is, uh, it's not small, just reading Alan's bio. It's, it's the, they cover roughly an area roughly the size of New Hampshire. Yeah, exactly. It's not a not a tiny place. No, and I and I think it's, you know, it's sort of an interesting model. I was kind of joking with him, but I'm half serious. I really do think in the next year or two, this is some this is a business case study. Like th- this should be really a healthcare policy and business case study that should be examined a lot deeper. And is it a model? We talk a little bit about is it a model that's repeatable? in other rural markets, because I still don't think we have a de facto rural healthcare delivery model that's really repeatable, let alone gets us good value. Well, we've got some, sure we have some business school students listening to this podcast. Kids love the podcast, so they should definitely reach out to you and I'm sure you can uh, set them in that direction. It'd be great to have this study done. Let's get started on this episode's interview with Alan Levine, the chairman, president, and CEO of Ballot Health. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. I am really excited this morning to have Alan Levine here, somebody who is the executive chair, president, and CEO of Ballot Health. This should be a very enlightening discussion, I believe. We've been trying for some time to talk with Alan and team a little bit about a topic we have not addressed, frankly, front and center, which is really about non-urban and rural healthcare. And so Alan is by all means an incredible expert in this topic. But Alan, welcome uh, to the podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. I, I sure appreciate it. So we're, we're excited about this topic. You and I have talked offline over the last couple of years on this topic. But let's start with you. As I always say, I try to get people's sort of background because a lot of people know you. There's probably a lot of people out there that don't know you that listen to this podcast. But sort of how did you even get involved? And you have such an interesting background on the policy side too. But how did you even get involved sort of in the healthcare side of things? Well, for me, like most people, healthcare is very personal. For me, it was personal. I lost my mother when I was five years old, and I, I was determined at that age I was going to be a doctor. And those, those plans got ambushed when I took chemistry as a freshman in college and realized I was not going to be a doctor. And somebody identified what my strengths and weaknesses were and advised me to look at hospital administration. I had never thought of that. And so I pursued that at the University of Florida and graduate school there. And I've always had an interest in policy, but also leading an organization. And so that's sort of my my career path has zigzagged between the public sector and, and policy roles and certainly as a CEO of health systems. And so it's both have served me well as I've gone into each of those different roles. And you've had interesting backgrounds in both Louisiana and Florida, let alone I'll, I'll talk about your Gator background next, but I do follow you on Twitter. I'm always amused by your sports play and how much you keep track of all that. But in Florida and Louisiana, I mean, pretty prominent policy roles at the state level. And you, more than probably anybody, understands the level of innovation that takes place at the state level due to those roles, right? You know, it's true. And and I'll tell you, in both Louisiana and Florida, it was, whether it was by timing, by accident, whatever, we were hit in both states with some very consequential challenges. And in all of those challenges, innovation is what got us through those. In Florida, it was 10 major hurricanes making landfall in the span of a year and literally inventing a technology solution so that we could have eyes on what was going on in hospitals and nursing homes throughout the state, which 
Florida is a pretty darn big state. Louisiana, same thing. I mean, we had to use technology after Hurricane Katrina. We were able to use technology because you had all these people on Medicaid who had prescription drugs, but their records were lost. And, you know, we I remember reaching out to a guy named Russ Thomas, who at the time had a small company that was able to take that data and create new records so that wherever these people went from New Orleans, wherever they, whether they were in Alabama or Florida or Mississippi, they could go to a pharmacy and have access to their medication. So innovation, I always tell people, even as we've just gone through the pandemic with COVID-19, no matter what your plans are, no matter how much time you spend planning, those plans won't work. Something's going to go wrong and you have to innovate your way out of it. A lot of really great things have happened out of necessity. And I guess the last thing in the background is, is I believe you're still on, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, University of Florida, the boards, I believe, still of, of those systems and, and a huge Gator fan. I've served on the board of University of Florida. I'm currently on the board of governors for the State University System of Florida. And there I chair the Research and Academic Excellence Committee of the board. So obviously a focus on using the power of research to help transform not just Florida, but the world. And that's the heads up to anybody's listening, which is if you really want to know the latest and greatest of what's going on with Florida athletics, just follow Alan on Twitter and, and, and you can get it. <laughs> well, this weekend, I don't want to talk about the baseball game this weekend. It was borderline humiliating, but we got eliminated. Uh, well, well, my undergrad alma mater last night went out in the Division Three baseball championship, so I'm a little bitter <laughs> about that. They didn't make it to the Final Four. So let's move on to Ballot, because I think that the other, not only your background, which is incredible from all the different lenses that we'll talk about today, but the creation of Ballad, I don't think that story is well understood enough, at least a lot of the cross, a lot of people that I know. I mean, and it's an incredible story. So can you just take us through that a little bit and how you got involved with Mountain States and bringing the systems together and what, what had to be done to actually do that? Just give people a little bit of background on it. Well, we're in a region the size of New Hampshire. We have about a million people. Like America, most of our region is rural. There's a couple of non-urban core hub areas. We had two health systems that were competing with each other. It was a very, very intense competition and in many ways irrational. There was a lot of duplication. For instance, we had two level one trauma centers 20 miles apart. You go to Orlando, Florida, they have one level one trauma center. Tampa has one level one trauma center between Gainesville and Tampa. Nashville has one level one trauma center. So you could see there was a tremendous amount of duplication, very costly services, because the theory here was if one system had it, the other had to have it. In an environment, where only 50% of the hospital beds are full and declining with as use rates were declining. One of the systems, our competitor, Wellmont, basically went on the market. They were going to be acquired by an outside system, which as we've seen throughout the country, as there's been more and more consolidation, smaller systems getting taken over by larger ones, local communities lose their voice in the management of healthcare and access in their community, in their region. And the people in our region, the business leaders said, we don't want that. We don't want to see our hospital systems be controlled and the healthcare for our community be controlled by somebody who lives in Nashville or somewhere else. That's not to speak badly of those systems, but in our region, so much of our economy is driven by healthcare and the support for our manufacturing is, is supported by healthcare. They didn't want to lose control. And so we proposed a unique merger where Mountain States and Wellmont would merge. Neither health system had ever been rated by the bond rating agencies with more than a triple B plus rating. So they both had debt, but we decided the idea here was and I use Greenville, Tennessee as the best example. There were two hospitals in that town. Both hospitals had lost $70 million in the five years leading up to the merger. They were below 30% of capacity. And yet both hospitals were trying to duplicate everything. And they were literally a mile and a half apart. And what we did was we said, okay, here's an example where we would consolidate services, eliminate duplication, and then identify those things from a healthcare perspective 
social determinants, things that are upstream and downstreams of the hospitals, let's invest in those things so that we can actually change the trajectory of healthcare for the region. As a rural region, like many others, you know, our, our cancer rates of death from cancer and, and diabetes and heart disease are much higher. So what we did there is we consolidated those two hospitals and we converted one to a residential facility for women who are pregnant and homeless or drug addicted or who have other forms of mental illness. So we could give those women a housing security, we could give them food security and focus on some of the other issues so that when their baby's born, they're born into a healthy situation. That's an example where a health system is trying to transform itself from being a bunch of hospitals to being a health improvement organization. And that's what the mission and the vision of Ballad is that. It's to transform ourselves from just being a collection of hospitals to going where we have to go to help transform the overall health of the community. And we recognize that the business model hasn't caught up with us yet. So for instance, in Greenville, we started off down that path and our plan was to fund the whole thing ourselves. But in Tennessee, the governor extended Medicaid for one year for women that are postpartum. And the state of Tennessee gave us a $7 million two-year grant to fund 100% of the operating costs for the first two years of that residential facility. So we leaned in, we did the right thing, and it worked out. And so we think that the business model will catch up to what we're doing. And hopefully we can do more of that. And we have. We started several other programs that every woman in the region is going to be assessed for risk of social determinants to determine if their child is going to be born into a situation where they're at risk of adverse childhood experiences. So we can now intervene before that child is born, provide supports to the woman who's going to deal with that child, and hopefully end up with that child being kindergarten ready by the time they're five years old which sets that child on a trajectory to graduate high school, college, or career ready, which transforms the whole region. That's the role a health system can play in this. And that's what Ballad's purpose was. Do you think that's the way, I want to jump down too much into saying the way forward for rural or non-urban health, but is that the way forward for healthcare? When you start thinking, I mean, I remember having these discussions when I was at Premier, where we'd say like, look, there's a, to your point, two hospital systems sharing a parking lot. There's a Da Vinci robot system in each of them. And the utilization's at like 20%. Is that kind of the way forward over the next two decades? The only way to really sort of reduce all this, which is, and people hate this word, but it's, it's the rationalization, not of care, but of buildings, equipment, all the different stuff, and really doing the analysis region by region to ensure that you have a productive and, and lean type of system. You know, there's so many moving parts in healthcare. When you look at the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, their approach to consolidations in healthcare is that competition is, is the way to go forward. And in communities throughout the country, that's true, where you have critical mass and the ability to have competitive alternatives that don't drive up costs. But you have other parts of the country where if you look at what's happening now, there's an article in Modern Healthcare Today I saw where businesses, big companies are starting to descend on Washington to demand that something be done about the cost of healthcare. Well, you don't reduce the cost of healthcare unless you reduce the cost of healthcare. And so in our case, in Ballard's case, here's what we ha what happened to us. In the three years since we formed, we have reduced low acuity admissions by 16,000 per year. That's a big drop in low acuity admissions. By moving into risk-based contracts and things like that, we've been able to shift care from the expensive inpatient setting to the outpatient setting. And as we learn to use technology more and more, we think that's going to happen even more. That has reduced the cost of healthcare by $200 million a year in this region alone. Our revenues decreased by $200 million a year. How have we done that? Well, we don't have two hospitals losing money in Greenville. 
We don't have three hospitals in, in Wise County, Virginia. We've eliminated a lot of that structural cost that's enabled us to reduce the low acuity admissions and therefore we could absorb the $200 million lost annual revenue. Our bond ratings have actually gone up for the first time. All three rating agencies now rate Ballot Health with an A rating, Fitch, Moody's, and Standard & Poor's, even with less revenue. They, they recognize that the business model for us works for our region. Just because I followed it so closely, but you went through real structural change. I guess that was where the heart was going with that, which is, and you didn't just add on a bunch of fixed costs and consolidation and let's raise prices, which is what's in the market right now in terms of the issue with consolidation. You went through consolidation and you rationalized your fixed cost infrastructure. So you could enable what you just suggested, I assume. Well, that's the, that's the whole point. So that's the choice. As a small system, we have been acquired by a larger system but we didn't get rid of the duplicative cost. The only way to sustain or grow margins is to increase prices, is to go back to the managed care companies and leverage the size of whoever bought us and drive up prices. Our approach was opposite. We actually committed ourselves, we agreed with Virginia and Tennessee that we would cap our pricing increases at a rate well below the hospital CPI. So our rates are our pricing. In fact, we decreased our pricing for urgent care and other physician-based services. We actually decreased our pricing an average of 17%. So we decreased pricing as opposed to increasing pricing. And the way we were able to do that was to eliminate that structural cost. And, you know, Keith, that was hard. I, I will tell you, healthcare is local and it's personal. And when you tell a community, we don't need two level one trauma centers, the community doesn't want to hear that. And so we went through a very difficult period where we consolidated the two level one trauma centers and we consolidated the two level three NICUs. And at the beginning of that, it was a lot of pushback, a lot of negative. People did not like it. I, let me put it this way. I would never get elected mayor of anything around here. Okay. But three years later, here's the result. The month that we consolidated the level one trauma centers, our mortality rate for trauma was 10 and a half percent. Four months in a row, the last four months, our mortality rate was below 5%. So we've decreased our mortality rate by half and our, our trend improved because the data shows high risk services like that. The more volume you do, the better you are at it. Well, the, we, no, you don't have to have any more evidence than what we've experienced with the level three NICU. Uh, when we consolidated that, people didn't like it. But now we're about to build a brand new level three NICU regional perinatal center to serve the entire region. And so that couldn't have happened if the two systems hadn't merged and we built enough volume and critical mass of people to support those high acuity, high intensity services. And it feels like, I mean, that's, I guess I'm hitting on it because a lot of people don't appreciate the level of detail that you guys are in and the flip side of that consolidation story. That's why I'm, I'm pinging it because I, I feel like you guys are an incredible case study for somebody to document. I'm sure somebody has or, or somebody should. It feels like a business school case study to me where you really sort of look at structural change. You look at it in the first year, which I think there was a lot of angst to your point, but two, three, four, five years out, like what really came of that? Like that's real data, that's real change. And oh, by the way, we capped our prices, which also is a you know a tough topic for a lot of health systems around this country. You know, it's funny that the two things that the FTC talked about when and the FTC staff opposed our merger every step of the way. We had to get state approval. And just to understand how hard that was, we had to get the legislature in Tennessee and Virginia to pass legislation saying we're going to trade competition for regulation. Then we had to get a Democrat governor and a Republican governor to agree to that. 
And we had to get a Democrat attorney general and a Republican attorney general to agree to it. And then we had to get health commissioners in two states to agree to it, all over the objections of the staff of the Federal Trade Commission, who argued that if we merge, prices will go up and volume and quality will deteriorate. Well, the opposite has happened. Pricing has actually gone up lower. We're much lower than the hospital CPI. Our pricing increases have been low single digits. Secondly, the uh, quality, there are 17 metrics that we're tracking, harm measures that we're tracking. Of those 17, 12 have actually improved. Some of them have improved 50 to 60%. Our readmissions are lower than either system had ever achieved on their own. I mean, I'm not saying we're perfect, and there's certainly opportunities for us. But our board, just within the last year, voted unanimously to pursue IBM Watson top 15. They want us to be a top 15 health system in the country. And keep in mind, we're doing all this with only a 20% commercial payer mix. 70% of our payer mix is Medicare, Medicaid, and uninsured. So when you step back and you think about that, is there any other experiment in this country that looks and feels like valid right now? No. There have been other health systems that did a what's called a COPA, a certificate of public advantage, where they like Mission Health and Asheville had operated under COPA, but it was nowhere near as stringent or as large as ours is. And then it was repealed um, by the legislature in North Carolina. And then HCA acquired Mission, as you know. And to give you an, a good indication, if you look at COVID-19 and you look at what's happened with the staffing shortages all over the country, after Mission was acquired by HCA, and again, this isn't a statement about HCA, it's a, it's a fine, well-run company. Within a year of that hospital being sold and operated by an outside entity, the nurses voted with a 70% vote to unionize. Our nurses here, if you, we, we do our pulse surveys to get the opinions of our nurses, even in the throes of a massive nursing shortage, our nurses, we do daily safety huddles on every unit of every hospital in our system. At seven o'clock every morning when they do report, they do a huddle. If there's an issue, it gets elevated. By nine o'clock in the morning, it's being discussed on my floor at the corporate office. So no matter where you work, no matter who you are, if you see a safety issue, a staffing issue that can't be solved locally, it gets elevated all the way to me every day. And so these are the things you do when you want to be an excellent health system. We did not merge for the purpose of going to insurance companies and driving up our rates. That was not in our plan, and and it's not in our plan going forward. We want to be a partner with payers. We want to innovate and do things differently, and we're happy to test things even if they may fail. Our board understands that we are an experiment, and sometimes things fail during an experiment. And, And I will tell you, we've had not, after three very difficult years of implementing this merger, we haven't lost anyone on our senior management team. Every one of them that was here when we planned the merger, they're still here today, and they're still very committed to the vision of of Ballard. So when you step back and and you think about sort of what you've done there, and you sort of put that on the landscape of rural healthcare, non-urban healthcare, what do you think is the current sentiment or market landscape right now in, in other markets? How does that play out in the coming years? We've had a lot of closures and critical access hospitals. We've had you know a lot of debate on what should be done in these markets. What's your belief in, in that setting? The business model is working exactly how it was designed. By that, I mean, if you're a rural hospital and you admit people to the hospital, you get paid. But the reality is that that business model is not the right one. If you look at rural America, where access is a problem, access to specialties is a problem, access to pharmacies is a problem. The right model, in my view, is a combination of taking 
the current expenditures between the public sector and the private sector, figuring out how to bring those together and then create a reasonable and predictable revenue stream for that rural hospital so the hospital can transform from being a hospital into doing the things we're doing. Wouldn't it be great in a rural community if you knew every woman that was pregnant whose child was going to be born into a situation where there were serious risk issues for poor health. If you want to change the trajectory of healthcare in rural and non-urban America, you have to get ahead of poor health. And we've talked about this for decades. It's not that hard. We have enough data right now. We can use artificial intelligence to identify who are the folks that are likely to run into these types of challenges before they become challenges. And who better to lead that than a rural health system that has a governing board locally, people in the community know each other, and they can provide support for each other. Wouldn't it be great if you can avoid a child getting type 2 diabetes before they get it because you've identified who's at risk for it? And to me, that's where this is heading. I'll tell you one initiative we just rolled out. It's called the Appalachian Highlands Care Network. Think about this. We now have the data because we're the only health system in the region. So with our Epic platform, we have the ability to identify those folks who have no insurance, who either have, let's say, diabetes or are at risk of diabetes based on the data that we have. So we can lean into contacting them and, and getting them connected to care management. Now think about what that means. For them, it's better because it potentially avoids having an acute situation where they end up in the ER or in the hospital. It helps better manage their health. So they're healthier, they can work, they can, they can do the things they have to do to provide for themselves and their families. And it's good for us because now we've avoided an admission for somebody that has no health insurance. And so the saving structurally in the in the fixed cost of all these assets by eliminating the duplication and investing in the Appalachian Highlands Care Network, it's better healthcare, better outcomes, and it'll actually save us money. So it's that's a, a whole different business model that I think works in rural America if you change the financing mechanism. So is that the way through, and I'll talk about the finance stuff in a second, but is the urgency more in rural than obviously urban settings to fundamentally change the hospital platform or the sick platform to more of a you know a health care pathway platform, if you will, and to be sort of in the community sort of as the health provider. And that means all sorts of different things to your point about what you just suggested on, on the network. It feels to me like that might be more urgent in rural America than anywhere else because it's a survival factor and it can fundamentally change the game in those settings. It's 100%. It became urgent 20 years ago. I mean, it's been urgent for a long time. And to your point, a rural hospital, maybe they don't need to have a general surgeon, but maybe they need to transform themselves to lean into mental health or behavioral health for schools so that you can head off the issue of addiction before it becomes a major crisis in a community, although it's currently a major crisis in so many rural communities. The reality is that the bricks and mortar of what hospitals were when they were first built, if you go back to Hill Burton, when those were built, they were all intended to be inpatient hospitals. The healthcare needs of those communities has changed, but the financing model hasn't. So the hospital is still hanging on to those old models. That's where I think the opportunity is. And my advocacy has been the federal government, state governments, and private payers, they've got to come up with a mechanism where they can pool those resources and make the investment so that the hospitals can transform and sort of build a bridge towards that new business model. And, you know, Liz Fowler brought this up, the new head of CMMI a week or so ago about more mandatory models. Again, it feels like every time we sweep in with the Democratic administration, mandatory models, value-based models come back and play or vogue. Is that, again, back to urgency? And I know we've had a lot of stuff there, especially on the telehealth side, even pre-pandemic, but do we need more experimentation 
on the rule side with value than also anywhere else? And should we see that at the state level, which you probably are seeing already? And should we also see that at the federal level, whether it's through CMMI or other mechanisms through CMS? CMMI, the last two directors, Adam Bowler, really, he moved the needle a lot while he was there. And I will say, I think the value model does work. However, the way it's currently structured, it's sort of a risk-based model where you have attributed lives. The problem in rural areas is there's not enough attributed lives. And so here's what I think they ought to do. And it, it, it hasn't caught traction yet, although I really think it's the right approach. If you figure out what a rural hospital, if you take all the healthcare services in that rural community or in the region that hospital serves, and you say, all right, we're going to lock you in at that number for five years, but we'll take maybe a three to 5% savings off the top. So the federal government gets some savings, but you have predictability for five years. You know that that's your revenue stream. Going forward, you now have a five-year window to transform and make the investments you need to make until you get to a different business model. It needs, obviously, that's a high-level idea that needs a lot of detail work. But yes, does that potentially cost more during that five-year period? Jury's out on that. I'm not sure it would cost more. But even if it did cost a little more relative to what it would be if you moved right into these full-risk models, I will tell you it's a better model for sustainability of those assets. Once a rural community loses that hospital, it's really hard going forward for that community. Economically, it's harder to recruit business. It's harder to keep doctors. So you need something to create that critical mass. I think that's the model. I hope CMMI will continue to lean into giving rural communities a chance to experiment with these types of models. I know we'll do it. If the, if the opportunity is there, we will participate if it makes sense for us. It seems like, I mean, given what we, we started with, and Ballad's unique footprint and what it's gone through. I mean, you're in such unique experiment territory. You probably have the means and the capabilities probably more so than many in a lot of these rural markets to be able to pull these things off. So it feels like you you would definitely be elite, almost like back in the day when you know Glenn and team at Geisinger around the early days of value about how to think about it differently. It feels like Ballad could definitely be that kind of next wave. You know, we, we are a different animal because of our ability. We've got about four or five hospitals that generate enough margin that we can cross-subsidize the rural hospitals. The challenge now, which, and I think this is the next the next wave that's going to hit the rural hospitals and non-urban hospitals really hard, and that's the nursing shortage. The nursing shortage is absolutely brutal. And it was bad before COVID-19. 170,000 nursing openings per year between 2019 and 2030, 80,000 nursing applicants were turned away from nursing schools because of lack of faculty and, and rotations uh, just in 2019 alone. And the average age of a nurse is 50, which means there's probably going to be about a million nurses leaving the profession in the next 10 years. So I think the nursing shortage is going to be more profound because of COVID. And the first places we're going to see the impact is in these rural and non-urban communities where, again, the payment system, the deck is stacked against these rural hospitals because of the wage index, the Medicare area wage index. So I think that we're headed for another wave of rural hospital closures. I think the prediction was somewhere between four and 600 are going to be in financial trouble. I do hope CMMI and, and the Biden administration can come up with some unique and innovative approaches to allow these rural hospitals to try something different. Maybe one of the last topics, and we could probably talk for a while on this, but does digital transformation change this at all in rural settings? So I, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with your team thinking through what you guys are trying to do on that front. So I, I guess I'd play two cards here, one, one of which is the digital transformation. The other side is like the emergence of the retail players and others that are more rural retail players like Walmart that have more recently 
pulled into healthcare, but also has been pulling back a little bit as of late. But I'm curious on both those fronts, maybe starting with digital transformation, you know, does that change the game at all? We've got broadband situations, you know, in rural settings too to deal with, but I'm just curious how you think about the digital side of all this. I think it does. And a a great example of that, in our region, we have very large private primary care groups. And in the rural markets, we tend to employ more primary care, but the race that's on now is for attribution of lives. And a year ago, we, we, we would talk about the various physician groups being our biggest competitor for that. But now with the actualization of digital access, our biggest competitor is not the physician group down the street. It's these private equity supported companies that are coming in with technology where the the patients really don't need us unless it's for a real high acuity inpatient procedure. Even looking at hospital at home or healthcare at home, there's a lot of looming threats for hospitals that are out there and our competitors are potentially in, in other parts of the country. So yeah, and so we're making those investments. Digital health is a big part of what we're doing. For instance, we've already stood up digital urgent care. So you could go right into our website, click three times and have an appointment with our online urgent care and not even have to come into the facility for certain types of symptoms. We're looking heavily at healthcare at home. Again, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? I mean, during COVID, we had over 1,200 people. We called it safe at home, where instead of admitting them to the hospital, we were able to care for them virtually in their homes so they could stay at home with their family and not have to be inside the hospital, which helped decompress our nurse staffing. But also, we invented that literally during COVID. And so, yeah, I don't think there's any going back from that. It's interesting because there's there's so many macros. Maybe we'll touch on the last one here. You know, the macro on the rule side where you started, which is you know how do these how does system duplication sit within some of these settings? How does consolidation fits into that? How does labor and staffing, the point you brought up, major macro to mess with? You know, then how does digital transformation sort of apply into this? That you now have people that are non-market players that could potentially be playing in your market that you've never had before, non-traditional competitors. And I guess the fourth one is whether it's an Amazon, whether it's a Walmart, whether it's these sort of non traditional players now coming in as well. Like, How does that macro potentially downstream impact? You probably don't feel it today, but I guarantee there's probably a number of Walmarts sitting within your communities that you serve. You know, Does that impact you in time downstream, lower acuity? But I'm just curious, you know, does that factor into the macros as well? I think it does. I, I think health systems generally have to have a clarity about what their patients are going to do. If you think about the generation of people that are now able to do so much on their phone, and we've got to go where they are, or we're going to lose them. And you look, the threat for non-urban and rural areas is when you lose some of that attribution and you lose some of that business, and you're in an urban or high growth suburban area, your growth, the growth of your population can mitigate the risk of those entrants to your market. But if you're in a non-urban or rural area where there's no population growth, when somebody comes and picks off one of your patients, that's a real hit to your business. There's no, there's nothing to replace it with. That's the hyper issue for rural communities is they've got to swing and adapt to this because the virtual care is not going to go away. People are going to access it and we, we want to be the one that they choose. And so we, we're going to lean heavily into this. And we just made a $200 million investment into creating a common digital platform. And now we're leaning very heavily into building what we hope will be impenetrable relationships with our patients. Any recommendations on the close here about We've talked to your team. We've talked to you a little bit about this over the last year or two about, you know, the amount of money that's pouring into, you know, innovation, digital health companies is just unstoppable as of late. And then you think about one of the rate limiting factors where you you haven't seen a lot of companies. I, I can't tell you maybe a handful of people that have come in and pitched us that says, hey, our focus is rule. Because to your point, population growth size, risk reward, return profile. 
Any advice there for people thinking about that? I mean, should there be more companies, you know, just targeting your areas and working with you guys thinking about this? I know we've talked about the mother baby sort of opportunity in the past, but I'm just curious sort of, because we do have a a handful of entrepreneurs that always listen to these, any advice on the rural side? Well, I think it's a huge untapped market. I mean, 90% of America's landmass is rural and the problems in rural communities, there's a lot of commonality to those problems. So as I mentioned, some of the things that we're doing, we think there's a business model where we can export some of what we're doing with the mother baby uh, things and the and the residential facilities and, su- and such. And we see that as an opportunity to diversify our revenue stream, which is good for a rural community to have. I think I understand there's some really smart people behind this private equity and they're going to go where the risk reward for them is there. You can go focus in these urban areas. There's an awful lot of competition for those resources and, and for whatever the innovation is. You go to the rural areas, there's not a lot of people buying to partner with rural communities to solve some of these problems. And so I do think there's opportunity, whether the returns, I think it's less competitive, but I think there's some returns to be had. Yeah. And it's interesting if if the wave of social impact investing comes even stronger into sort of domestically here in the States with healthcare, I wonder if that becomes one of the vectors by which people start thinking about that risk reward return profile for social reasons as much as it is for financial return. Well, if you if you could find if the federal government, I mean, if I were in charge of CMS or, or the federal government, I would say, all right, one of the biggest concerns I've always had about health policy is everybody's always looking for the silver bullet. And there isn't one. I mean, if there's anything I learned there is no silver bullet. These problems are very complex and they're very diverse throughout the country. But if you said, okay, instead of investing in the next bricks and mortar or technology business model, because we're going to determine what that business model is from Washington, I think that is a failure waiting to happen. On the other hand, if you say, all right, rural communities have the worst social determinant issues, transportation, housing, food insecurity, addiction, alcoholism, all the things that we know about, Here's the deal, private equity America. If you develop a pathway for helping a rural community transform and get rid of those problems over time, the real value-based model isn't, here's a population and we're going to put you at risk. The real value model is to say, over the next 10 to 15 years, we want to see the rate of incidence of type 2 diabetes decrease by 50%. Whoever does that, there's a big payoff for you. And to me, that's the way to transform America. If you talk about the economic impact of that, in our region, back when the unemployment rate was only three and a half percent pre-COVID, the workforce participation rate was like, I want to say 47 or 51 percent. It was very low. There were 40 or 50,000 people out of the workforce because they they were suffering from other types of social determinant issues. And I mean, America needs that workforce and to walk outside now. And you know what I'm talking about. We need that workforce. Well, Alan, this has been terrific. We really appreciate your time and your insights. And as I said, I knew everybody would be in for it uh, with this discussion and it was, and it did not disappoint, but thank you so much. And uh, really look forward to getting this out there and published so people can listen to it. It's great to speak to you again, Keith. And I appreciate all the work you guys are doing. You guys are uh, an amazing, an amazing uh, group of folks. We're doing a lot of great things. So thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.